Welcome to EDS at Union Now. This week, Dean Douglas speaks with author Michelle Alexander. She's best known for the new Jim Crow, mass incarceration in the age of colorblindness. She's also an op-ed columnist of the New York Times and visiting professor of social justice at Union Theological Seminary. Be sure to stay up to date with EDS and all of our partners on our Facebook page. I am Kelly Brown Douglas, Dean of the Episcopal Divinity School at Union Theological Seminary in New York City. And I welcome all of you to another in our series of Facebook Live conversations as we reflect upon the many issues raised by this COVID-19 pandemic and the implications for our nation as well as for those of us who would call ourselves church or people of faith. I am especially pleased to have joining me for this conversation today, my colleague and friend, Michelle Alexander, author of the groundbreaking book, The New Jim Crow, New York Times columnist and visiting professor at Union Theological Seminary. Michelle, thank you so much for joining me today. Well, thank you. Um, I'm thrilled to be here with you. Great. Well, we've got much to cover in a little bit of time, and so I want to jump right in. It's so very fitting in many ways that we're having this conversation on Juneteenth, that day in 1865 when the news of Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation finally reached Galveston, Texas. And here we are, 155 years later, still living in the legacy of contradictions, if not hypocrisy, that that first Juneteenth reflects in terms of the reality of democracy in this country, that is presumably justice and freedom for all, especially when it comes to black and brown people. And perhaps there is nothing that has revealed more in our time this reality of contradiction and hypocrisy than the COVID-19 crisis, as it has laid bare the endemic injustice and inequity in this country. The COVID crisis has made clear in so many respects, Hal, in fact, and I'll use your words, Michelle, that our democracy hangs in the balance. So I wanna dig in on this a bit. And there's no better place to start than with our criminal justice system, or more aptly put, criminal injustice systems. In a recent article, you said that our criminal injustice system is a mirror reflecting back to us who we really are, as opposed to who we tell ourselves we are. Michelle, can you speak to how that has been the case, first of all, when it comes to the way in which this COVID-19 crisis has made clear that incarcerated persons are considered expendable and disposable in this country? Yeah, well, you know, it's often said that the degree of civilization in any society can be judged by entering its prisons. And Today, that can certainly be said of our criminal injustice system, which does operate as a mirror reflecting back to us who we really are, as opposed to what we tell ourselves. 
as a nation, you know, we tell ourselves that we believe all people are created equal with certain inalienable rights, including life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. But what we've seen in the wake of this coronavirus crisis is that not all lives matter. Mm -hmm. um, on some level, of course, we've always known this. Mm -hmm. um, Stanley Cohen uh, wrote an excellent book, States of Denial, that points out that many people know and not know the truth about oppression and suffering. He says, you know, denial is not simply a matter of telling the truth or intentionally telling a lie. There seems to be states of mind or even whole cultures in which we know and don't know at the same time. Well, as you point out, if there was any doubt whose lives truly matter in this country, the coronavirus crisis has you know, laid it bare for all of us to see prisoners' lives don't matter. So, you know, in the early weeks of the coronavirus crisis, uh, you know, there was this flicker, uh, a moment of hope. Uh, there was absolute consensus being reached among advocates, medical experts, and health officials that the best public health response um, to coronavirus behind bars is to de-densify. That means prisons ought to release as many people as possible, as quickly as possible. But instead of releasing people earlier than our criminal injustice system originally planned, uh, relatively few people were allowed to go home. And instead of releasing people, Prisons nationwide have begun placing people on lockdown, keeping them in solitary confinement, which is considered a human rights violation in many countries, you know, rather than letting them go home and avoid a potentially deadly virus. You know, here in Ohio, my home state of Ohio and yours, <laughs> uh, more than 80% of the people who are caged at Marion Correctional Center have been infected with the coronavirus and some already have died. Uh, you know, back in April, the Ohio Prisoners Justice League and Ohio Organizing Collaborative demanded that our governor, Governor Mike DeWine, release about 20,000 people, about 40% of those in state custody by the end of May. Now that number would have encompassed those whose sentences are nearly complete, those who are imprisoned for nonviolent offenses, elderly people and those whose health problems render them especially vulnerable to infection. But did the governor release them? Release 20,000 people in an effort to save lives? No. In response to the coronavirus, he commuted seven sentences and created an opaque process through which about 1,300 people may have been diverted um, away from prison. So he didn't release folks from prison. He diverted people away from prison into alternative programs. And so only about 200 people out of 60,000 uh, were recommended for early release. Meanwhile, tens of thousands of people who are crammed in Ohio prisoners have been fearing for their lives. Uh, this entire crisis could have been averted if the governor had been willing to free people in mass when the risk to the cage population became clear. Um, Ohio, unfortunately, is far from unusual. This horrifying situation is playing out in prisons around the country. Now, I know there's some people um, who might say, who have said 
to me <laughs> that the coalition's demand to release 20,000 people is unreasonable. You know, 20,000 does sound like a very large number, but if we put this in perspective, I think we can see it's abundantly reasonable. Most state prisons are operating way above capacity. In Ohio, the system is about 10,000 people above capacity. Roughly 22% of people in Ohio prisons are there for technical violations of their post-release conditions. And the number one people, number one reason people end up in prison in Ohio and many other states is for drug offenses. So right. releasing 20,000 people would not only be easy, you know, it's long overdue. And if we truly value the lives of people who are locked in cages, you know, while a fatal virus circulates among them, releasing them a bit earlier than our criminal justice system originally planned would be a no brainer. In fact, you know, as I see it, I think people who've been convicted of violent crimes, not just nonviolent ones should be considered for possible release. You know, why should we exclude from consideration someone convicted of armed robbery at age 18 who's still locked up at age 40 or 45 simply because he has a couple years left on his sentence? You know, our government has been willing to shut down our entire economy, sparing only those sectors deemed essential. So shouldn't we also consider whether it's truly essential for millions of people to be caged? Um, I think that's what the, this crisis is really demanding that we face. No, wow. So powerfully said, and one of the things, Michelle, that strikes me in all that you've just said is that consistently you have spoken about people not criminals, not data, not statistics, not numbers, but people, human beings. We are talking about actual human beings, sacred creatures of God, as we like to say in the faith community, that have been put behind bars, locked in cages, and, and throw away the key, lock them up and throw away the key. So. What I'm wondering is what will it take? Because we know that there's this narrative. First of all, most of those uh, overwhelming amount of those people are persons with brown or black bodies. Mm -hmm. And so there is this narrative anyway that these are lives that don't matter. These are disposable uh, human beings. And then when they make a mistake, whatever that mistake may be in their lives, we'll get to that in a minute, that they become criminals. They're no longer human beings worth trying to save or restore. What will it take, Michelle, to get to change the narrative in this country from thinking of those persons who are behind bars, from thinking of them as criminals, unworthy, anything but human beings. I'm struck that you did that in an article that you wrote, speaking of your experiences in Marianne, really bringing to life the fact that these are human beings. How do we change that narrative? Well, you know, one of the reasons I wrote that op-ed in the Times, uh, I think it was entitled Let Our People Go, um, yes. was because I read a letter from a man who's locked up at Marion that blew my mind. Um, I read the letter 
shortly after there were major protests um, against the uh, refusal of the governor to release people from Marion, um, you know, in light of the coronavirus. And there had been a socially distant protest that had been staged on the Capitol lawn and people had been speaking out and trying to raise their voices as best they could and share information and data and, you know, medical studies and force and all that, trying to figure out how can we persuade the governor to listen? How can we persuade our elected officials to, to hear us, um, family members who are desperately concerned about their loved ones behind bars? And someone passed along this letter from a man who was locked up and who described what it was like behind bars, fearing for your own life and watching um, the people who are locked up with you suffering terribly from this disease and not getting the medical care they needed or the help or care compassion they deserved. And he described how he and the other men who were locked up with him, how they were caring for these people behind bars, um, you know, caring for the folks who they were locked up with, making sure that they had enough water, making sure that they had wet towels to cool themselves, making sure that they were being looked after around the clock when they couldn't believe, breathe well and were afraid that uh, if anyone knew of their infection, that they would be thrown into solitary rather than be given the health care that they needed. And the letter was so moving, not only in what he described was the, the physical material conditions in which he was dealing with, but also the fact that even the so-called good nurse, <laughs> the good nurse who uh, was willing to listen and showed even a small amount of compassion told him when he raised concern about the fact that they didn't have the proper protection they needed behind bars, basically told him, you know, you should consider yourself lucky. You should be, consider yourself lucky that there are staff here, you know, willing to, to help any of you at all. And at the conclusion of his letter, he basically like quotes from the letter from Birmingham jail um, that Martin Luther King Jr. wrote and was, you know, saying, look, if this is how the moderates feel, this is how the liberals feel, the white liberals feel, feel about us. There's, there's little reason for hope. And in the final line of the letter, he says, herein lies the cause of the profound spread of the virus throughout the institution, the collective sense of the undeservingness of prisoners. A vaccination would be nice, proper PPE would be nice, but the real cure for our woes is an affirmation of the inalienable entitlement to life for people in prisons and jails. And he was able to cut to the heart of the matter that as much as we might want to debate facts and statistics, that at its core, the crisis of mass incarceration and the disposability of those behind bars is rooted in this collective sense of the unworthiness of people behind bars, any unworthy of any care, compassion, or concern. And so after reading the letter, I realized that rather than me writing an op-ed, sharing all of the data and facts, trying to persuade people just with statistics and numbers and medical studies and information and data, that really what 
needed to happen is for him to be heard in his own voice, that we need to ensure that people who are locked up and locked out, as well as their loved ones and family members and people who are formerly incarcerated, finally have the opportunity to be heard, uh, to speak in their own voice. Um, and so I was thrilled that the Times allowed me to publish his letter, um, rather than me trying to summarize it or paraphrase it, paraphrase it to publish his own words. Um, and I think part of what needs to happen, it's not the entire solution at all, but part of what needs to happen um, is that we have got to commit ourselves, um, not just to kind of standing up <laughs> for those who are behind bars, but doing what we can to ensure that their voices are heard, that people who are incarcerated and formerly incarcerated have leadership positions in the movements that we are building together and that we um, resist the temptation to imagine that somehow we can win these battles with facts and data and arguments alone, that there is a profoundly human dimension, a spiritual dimension and a transformation that is possible when we are willing to pause long enough to listen to one another's stories um, and connect to their suffering. And thank you for that. And I, I think that it drives home again what you said, that the way we treat those people in our prisons and our prisons say something about who we are. And what you're saying here is that this is not so much an indictment on those who find themselves in prison, but it's an indictment on our own humanity in the ways in which we cannot affirm and recognize the humanity of another. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it, 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 it reminds me of that which Brian Stevenson often says is that we are not the worst thing that we've ever done or the worst mistake we've ever made. And somehow, while we don't think that of ourselves, we think that of others, particularly others who are not like us. And in this country, we recognize that that particularly becomes the case when we're talking about uh, people of color, that we often judge the entire community and certainly judge individuals by the worst mistake that they ever made and provide them with no uh, ability to uh, become better. So it leads me Michelle, to our, what's going on in our country today in terms of the fight for racial justice, the fight for um, reform in our policing. I, uh, we were talking a little bit prior to this conversation that I was most moved by the interview uh, that was conducted with Richard Brooks. Uh, prior to his death and how he had once been incarcerated and he was just beginning to try to get his life back together and to figure out uh, the way forward. And yet, as we know, uh, he becomes the victim of what I call another spectacle lynching uh, in, in this country, but he was victimized in some ways even before that. Uh, as he was seen as someone for which there was uh, no hope, an inexpendable, disposable uh, human being. So 
as we are in this moment now, where it seems as though people, the nation has been captured uh, by this need for reform. And we hear the mantra, Black Lives Matter. How, Michelle, do we move from this moment to making this mantra a true movement toward change, toward justice. As you say in this regard, when we talk about policing, you have said in a, a, a recent article that weeding out bad officers and bias training and uh, uh, what are, cameras uh, are insufficient. So what do we do? How do we move from Black Lives Matter mantra to Black Lives Matter in reality, particularly when it comes to policing? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think the first thing we have to do is be willing to face our racial history and our racial present and recognize that this so-called problem of policing is not an isolated problem. It's not a problem that can be solved without reckoning with the crisis in our democracy and our racial history and our racial present. There is no fixing policing without reimagining justice. Uh, uh, and you know, I, I think the reality is we we can't solve a problem we don't fully understand. As long as we're thinking about policing as an isolated institution that can be fixed either through technology or through some isolated policy changes, we are going to be going through this cycle over and over again with police violence that's captured on video and protests and rioting and uprisings and rebellions. It won't end. Uh, it's been going on for decades now. In fact, police violence <laughs> itself, you know, dates back to uh, runaway slaves and uh, slave catchers that were deputized. Um, so we can't solve a problem if we don't understand it and don't step back from these isolated instances and begin to take a larger view. The reality is that Donald Trump would not be president and George Floyd would not be dead if after the Civil War, our nation had committed itself to reparations, reconciliation and atonement for the land and people that colonizers stole, sold and plundered. But instead, um, you know, white people who enslaved blacks were granted reparations for their loss of property while formerly enslaved blacks were granted nothing, not even 40 acres and a mule. And ever since our nation has been trapped in this cycle of intermittent racial progress followed by fierce backlash and the emergence of new and supposedly improved systems of racial and social control. Um, we will continue doing this and for decades, if not centuries to come, if our democracy lasts that long. In fact, one of the things I think it's critical for people to reckon with in this moment is that the crisis we're facing in our democracy, not just the uprisings um, since George Floyd's killing, but the crisis we're facing in our democracy is, you know, Donald Trump you know, threatens to send in military troops over the objections of governors and 
seems, you know, you know, trigger happy for a civil war. Um, the crisis facing our democracy is real. Um, you know, we can be overconfident at times, uh, imagining that, you know, the democracy that we have to the extent we can call it a democracy is all at all as millions of people who have felony records are denied the right to vote. And we have a pay to play political system in which corporations and billionaires effectively determine our political choices. Um, and we have rampant voter suppression, all of that. It's difficult to call it a democracy at all, but to the extent that it exists, it can vanish. It's very fragile. Um, there was a book published shortly after Trump was elected called How Democracies Die, right. uh, published by a pair of you know, Harvard political scientists um, who were, who've studied the collapse of democracies around the world. And at the time Trump when elected, I can't remember the exact number, but I think we had already kind of hit six out of the eight indicators of that's right, that's right. democracies on the verge of collapse. And now here we are almost four years later and uh, you know, our situation is even more bleak, more fragile. So we are in this moment. Uh, we have Donald Trump as our president yeah. uh, in large part because we have been unable, unwilling to truly face our racial history and our racial present. And uh, I hope that going forward, um, we will take that task very seriously, not only through study, um, you know, alone as we read books, but by coming together in study circles and in groups dedicated to educating ourselves, which, you know, was central to the black freedom struggle um, decades ago, um, both within, you know, kind of the traditional civil rights organizations, as well as, you know, Black power organizations, um, the Black Panther Party, you know, insisted that people study, go through a period of several weeks of intense study before being allowed to even call of themselves a panther. So we need to commit ourselves to individual and collective learning and re-education, um, decolonizing our own minds um, and learning from those, um, not just from books, but learning from those who have suffered most in this era of mass incarceration and mass deportation and, um, you know, including indigenous folks um, who know very well um, the power and horrors of American empire unrestrained. Yeah, you make so very clear that in so many respects, and as we began this conversation, to claim ourselves a democracy is at best aspirational. Yes. And, uh, and the fact that we can have the kind of criminal injustice system that we have is testament to that. Uh, the fact that we are continually in this conversation about policing, uh, uh, in not understanding the depth of the problem with policing uh, in this country is testament to that. And testament to that is the fact that we as a nation not only elected uh, a Donald Trump with a Make America Great Again mantra, but we've held that. We've held that uh, uh, for these three and a half years with little or no uh, real pushback. Uh, on that. And so our democracy, as you said, even in its aspirational forms, hangs in the balance. So we're 
the end of their time. So I want to, we've got to, I want to end with a question. Uh, so we talk about our democracy in a balance and how we've held this culture for so long. That one of the things that I often uh, uh, conclude is that at this period in time, the soul of our nation is at stake and is at balance. That we are now become a people that are without not simply the moral leadership, uh, the uh, moral courage, perhaps not even the moral will to reach beyond ourselves for our better angels, uh, to become better than who we know we are and, and to try to live into the best of who we can become, even recognizing just, if we just start by recognizing the humanity of another, which you in this conversation have pointed out that it's we have failed to do. So I think this, for me, it's where the faith community uh, and faith communities can step in. What do, what do you think uh, can be, or is there a role for faith communities uh, this time in which we find ourselves, uh, time and transformation as a nation, and even as we talk about who we are as a people? Yeah, there's absolutely a role for faith communities right now. You know, we have thousands, perhaps millions of people in the United States and around the world who say they want to reimagine justice <laughs> and who are looking for something more than the quick fixes that have been on offer from various administrations and politicians now for decades. Um, when we hear demands for defund the police, mm -hmm in a city like New York City. Many people aren't aware that in New York City, Mayor, Mayor de Blasio increased the police budget by a billion dollars, <laughs> right? So these claims for defunding the police and reimagining that there might be a way of responding to the problems of poverty, of homelessness, of mental illness, drug abuse, uh, addiction, trauma, and violence, through strategies that don't involve policing and caging and punishment and lifelong felony records, um, people are looking for answers, alternative models of justice. And our legal system does not have any on offer. Our politicians have nothing to offer except more of the same, more body cameras, more training, more diversity training. So who? Who, if we are going to, to offer a new moral framework, a new way of imagining justice in our communities, in our country as a whole, who are we going to look to if not our theologians, if not people of faith who at least claim to believe in compassion and forgiveness and restoration and redemption? Who, if not us, who? If not now, when? Now, I'm someone who doesn't generally think of myself as a Christian or call myself as a Christian, in part because I found it so difficult over the years to reconcile the professed beliefs of Christians with their practice. 
but also because I've come to see that so many faith traditions have so much to teach us and that truth can be found in all of them. Um, and now is a perfect moment for us from whatever faith tradition we may find ourselves in, or if you don't claim one at all, but are seeking something more than cheap policy fixes. Um, now is the time, I think, for our philosophers, our theologians, people of faith, people of conscience to come together and to use our imaginations and to speak up more boldly and with more courage and say, yes, not only is another way of doing justice possible, but another way of doing democracy is possible. Another way in this world is possible. Um, and now is the time for people of faith really to show what we're made of um, and to offer an alternative narrative um, to the one that has been you know, offered by our politicians, um, uh, law enforcement, and all those who have sought to police and control uh, and punish rather than offer pathways for healing, reconciliation um, of individuals, families, and communities as a whole. Michelle Alexander, thank you so much for that and for this conversation. I think that this is a perfect place to end with the challenge to all of us, and particularly to those of us who would claim ourselves to be people of faith, to live in to the world that we have imagined in the world that for some of us, God has promised, this world where all people are truly treated as the sacred human beings and creations that they are. Thank you for the work that you do that keeps us on that pathway, Michelle, and challenging us every day. And thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Kelly. So good to see you. Good to see you.